This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. If you have your Bibles, would you please open them to 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13. It's the famous love chapter. And uh, as I've mentioned in our previous weeks, you know, this is a passage of scripture that's often read at weddings. And understandably so. It's very poetic. It's a beautiful passage of scripture. Uh, but the, the text is talking about Christian love. That is, love to be demonstrated within the body of Christ. So when you read these verses, this is talking not so much about marital love, though you certainly want to see it there. It's talking about love that's to be expressed within the church. So let me read it again. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 to 7. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. The Apostle Paul wrote these words to a talented, visionary, philanthropic church in Corinth. They were a group of people that were willing to charge the hill and die for the movement. Verses 1 to 3 describes everything they are, but verses 4 to 7 is a catalog of everything they're not. Paul is saying in spite of all these incredible gifts and this brilliance, they're characterized in their lives together by disputes and fighting, pride, coldness, rudeness, self-exaltation, impatience with each other. It's really a bombshell. The evidence of the Spirit's work among the church is not primarily in spiritual gifts. It's not in talent or gifting or philanthropic endeavors or even willingness to die for the movement. The evidence of the Spirit's work among the church is Christian love. One of our values here is gospel community. The church is a taste of heaven. The church ought to be a taste of heaven. It's the new Eden. It's a harbinger of the new heavens and the new earth. Why? Because it's the dwelling place of God. And what makes the church the dwelling place of God is the Spirit's presence. And Paul is saying Christian love, Christian love is the primary virtue of the dwelling place of God. Now, the first week we looked at just this first sentence of verse four, love is patient. That is, love is long-suffering. It has a long fuse. It isn't touchy. It's not easily irritated. Last week, we saw that love does not envy. 
Envy is a spirit of dissatisfaction that arises when we start comparing. Love learns to rejoice with those who rejoice. Now today we're gonna look at verse six. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. In our modern day culture today, we often associate Christian love with warm-hearted sentimentality. Warm-hearted sentimentality, that's love. This verse (laughs) is gonna throw us off because it's gonna show us love has an edge to it. It's not infinitely soft. It's got an edge to it. Now, why would Paul exhort believers on this particular aspect to Christian love? Well, look at the words. It certainly appears that there are different kinds of wrongdoing a believer may be tempted to delight in. At face value, that certainly seems to be what Paul is getting across to this church. That there are segments within this church that are tempted to delight in certain kinds of wrongdoing. Now this morning, we're going to look at three examples of this in our own uh, daily uh, lives. And my prayer is that uh, rather than rejoicing in any of these, quite the opposite would be true of us. And that we would learn to grieve over that, to confess that and to turn from it, okay? Three wrongs Christians are tempted to rejoice in. There are hundreds. (laughs) I asked the staff, I sent out an email this last week to the staff, I said, what are some wrongs Christians are tempted to rejoice in? Boy, the list they produced was endless. I can't get through all that they talked about. But let me talk about three, entertainment, matters of sexuality, and the demise of a rival. Entertainment, matters of sexuality, and the demise of a rival. First, entertainment. This is hard. This is hard. We are prone to delight in TV shows, movies, entertainers that are characterized by celebrating wrongdoing and sin. It's an easy trap for us to fall into because it's everywhere. I am prone to this. There are lots of TV shows out there that make slander humorous, that make gossip fun. Lots of plot lines surround that sort of thing. How many television shows exalt some kind of sexual immorality? And how many of those are are shows that we faithfully watch and take delight in? Sex outside the context of marriage isn't just an unfortunate reality today, it's a celebrated norm in the entertainment world. Let me mention one example, Game of Thrones. Wildly popular, record-setting show on HBO. I have not seen this show not one scene, but as I caught wind of its popularity even among Christians, uh, I wanted to find out more about it. So I read about it. Now, from what I've been able to surmise, people consider this show to be riveting. 
despite what Aaron Rodgers said about its conclusion. Full of compelling characters, excellent writing, superb effects. Question, isn't it also full of graphic sex scenes? Now, Jesus warned us about looking at a woman lustfully. And Paul told us to avoid even the slightest hint of sexual immorality. His words, not mine. Now, some Christians have countered saying, well, it, you know, it doesn't bother them. It doesn't lead them into sin. They look at it as a form of art. Okay. Question. Would Jesus, the Apostle Paul, be comfortable pulling up a chair and watching two naked people have sex or pretend to have sex? Would they do that? Would they join you in that while saying, pass the popcorn? Christian love does not delight in evil. Now, I am no killjoy when it comes to entertainment. I enjoy watching Brian Regan as much as the next person. But entertainment choices are tricky waters to navigate, very tricky waters to navigate. They are filled with wrongs over which we are prone to rejoice primarily because it's covered in a veneer of clever and humor Whenever we see something before our eyes, here's a good question we can ask ourselves. Whenever we see something before our eyes, here's the question. Can I thank God for this? Ask that question. Whenever something's before my eyes, can I thank God for this? If I can't, then maybe it's not the best use of my time in that moment. Certain kinds of entertainment is the first wrong believers are tempted to rejoice in. Second, matters of sexuality. There's been no shortage of Christians who, have, Christians who have celebrated the landmark ruling of the Supreme Court legalizing same-sex marriage just a few years ago. And in the years since, more and more Christians have adopted what I would call an accommodationist perspective, contending following Jesus and engaging in same-sex sexual acts are harmonious and can be good. Accommodationist perspective. Following Jesus and engaging in same-sex sexual acts can be harmonious and good. In one Christian author's view, those relationships can be, quote, holy, end quote. In another Christian author's perspective, we should support those kinds of relationships within the Christian community. Now, today, there are numerous Christians, churches, denominations that vigorously contend there is no conflict between biblical Christianity and same-sex marriage. Now, I don't want to assume that we're all on the same page with that when it comes to what marriage is or isn't. I also don't have the time to go into a lengthy discussion about what the scriptures teach on that. But in short, God tells us in the scriptures that marriage is one man, one woman for life. One man, one woman for life. Now, some may think that God is being rather intolerant by restricting marriage to one man and one woman for life. God is being a little intolerant. But there are numerous places in the Gospels where Jesus demonstrates himself to be intolerant. 
Jesus makes it pretty clear there are some beliefs and some behaviors that are not compatible with following him. Not every belief, not every practice is compatible with following Christ. There are numerous examples of this. There was a rich man who wanted eternal life. He came up to Jesus and asked him what he should do. Jesus said, sell your possessions, give to the poor, then come follow me. And the man couldn't do it. He walked away. Hoarding money and possessions, being greedy, being stingy or whatever is incompatible with following Jesus. And Jesus is the one who establishes that. Now, someone may say, well, I like that. I don't think greed should be accommodated. I don't think greed should be compatible with with following Christ. But listen, being a Christian isn't about following Jesus when you like what he says. That's not the test of true Christianity. The test of true Christianity is what you do when Jesus tells you something you don't like. That's the test. Will he be a convenient figure that you store on your shelf and pull out when you need him? Or will he be Lord and Master? If he's Lord and Master, he gets to tell you things that you don't want to hear. If he's Lord and Master, he's going to tell you things you don't like, but you're going to have to follow. Not every belief, not every practice is compatible with following Christ. And Jesus has a long history of making demands of people to choose. But not every professing Christian is on board with this. Not every professing Christian is on board with this. There's one Bible scholar who put it this way. He said, I think it is important to state clearly that we do, in fact, reject the straightforward commands of Scripture and appeal instead to another authority when we declare that same-sex unions can be holy and good. And what exactly is that authority? We appeal explicitly to the weight of our own experience. And the experience thousands of others have witnessed too, which tells us that to claim our own sexual orientation is in fact to accept the way in which God created us. Dutch Bible scholar Pim Pronk, who is himself gay, admitted that Christians are eager to see same-sex unions supported in the Bible. But here's what he writes. In this case, that support is lacking. Wherever homosexual intercourse is mentioned in Scripture, it is condemned. Rejection is a foregone conclusion. Assessment of it nowhere constitutes a problem. Now, when you read between the lines of what accommodationists say, you'll quickly realize that this debate is ultimately a debate about authority. People will always submit to their highest authority. You can take that to the bank. Now, for many, that authority is simply personal preference. I march to the beat of my own drummer. For others, it's whatever the cultural majority thinks. Everybody has an authority they submit to. We all have an authority they submit to. It might be personal preference, might be the crowd they're rolling with, cultural majority, whatever it is. They all have an authority they submit to. Unless that authority is the truth of God's word, sexuality 
and all other issues will be subject to the whims of individuals and societies. It's going to blow and drift and move about. It'll be a constant moving target. Unless that authority is the truth of God's word. Now, what, is, what does all of that have to do with the verse that we're looking at? Let me, let me explain that. Accommodationists have insisted, who are we to say to people who genuinely love each other and are committed to each other can't be joined together in marriage? Who are we to say, as, as Christians, a church, or what we think the scriptures teach, who are we to say that two people who genuinely love each other, regardless of who they are, regardless of who they are, two people genuinely love each other, why they can't be joined together in marriage. Pastor and author Thabiti Anyabwile once found himself in the middle of that conversation. <laughs> he found himself in the middle of that conversation. And he argued that same-sex marriage cannot be properly called love to begin with. Same-sex marriage cannot be called love. Well, you say, how could he say such a thing? Well, he quoted our verse today. He quoted our verse, love does not delight in wrongdoing. He went on to say that the Bible teaches that same-sex sexual intimacy is, in fact, wrongdoing. And so even though there may be strong emotions involved, it doesn't measure up to the Bible's definition of love. We cannot properly call it love. Christian love does not delight in wrongdoing. Wherever that may be found, and however God's word may define that. Christians do not delight in wrongdoing. But Christians rejoice with the truth. Christian love cannot celebrate something God's word condemns. So matters on, on sexuality have been wrongs believers are tempted to find delight in. Let me mention a third one. The demise of arrival. And this, I think, is of um, great significance for us. The church in Corinth possessed a competitive, status-seeking culture. That was their culture, a competitive, status-seeking culture that encouraged taking pleasure in the loss suffered by others, perhaps a rival, maybe even an enemy. And you can picture that, right? You can picture the the ways in which we're tempted to feel pleasure over the demise of our rival. You've got a rival, you've got enemies, you've got someone who's under your skin. And there are moments, maybe they're brief, like a flash of lightning, where you dream of life getting worse for them. Yeah. Love does not rejoice in the wrongdoing that someone has done that has brought about some loss of standing. Love doesn't delight in the loss of esteem. You want a verse that hits us between the eyes? Here's one, Proverbs 24, 17. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls. Just stop there. You see what it says? Do not rejoice when your enemy falls falls and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles. Oh, we're tempted to go the opposite way with that one, aren't we? We're not to gloat when our rival falls. 
not to gloat when our rival suffers a loss of esteem. And oftentimes, this is what gossip is made of. Gossip-laden conversations at times can express a giddiness over the loss of esteem suffered by another. But this is antithetical to Christian love. It is morally wrong to rejoice in another's calamity. Period. Full stop. It is morally wrong to rejoice in another's calamity. On October 4th, 2006, Charles Carl Roberts, um, who ran a milk route in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, went into a one-room Amish schoolhouse carrying guns. Uh, This is familiar news to most of us. He went into the schoolhouse, he sent out the boys, he sent out the adults, he tied up 10 young women, children. When the police came, Roberts fired 18 shots, 10 of them directly at the heads of those girls. Five of them were immediately killed. One will be on life support for the rest of her life. The others have healed enough to go back to school, but they're gonna bear the scars of that shooting for the rest of their lives. And after inflicting this carnage, Roberts took his own life. Now what was significant about that horrific event was the way in which the Amish responded. They did not respond with hate or vengeance. They responded with forgiveness. The families of the victims took their daughters home and they laid them out in public view for everybody to see the rawness of what had taken place. But that afternoon, something strange happened. See, the shooter was married and he had three young children. I've tried to replay what would I do if one of those victims was my daughter. I can imagine a hundred scenarios in which I wish his wife and his children nothing but the worst. But that afternoon, two elders from the Amish community went to the shooter's wife and three kids and told them they were forgiven. And the Amish community held nothing against them. And they did even more than that. They gave Robert's wife money to take care of the funeral expenses, as well as additional money to take care of the expenses they would have after her husband was buried. And when they had the funeral for Charles Carl Roberts, half of those who attended the funeral came from the Amish community. As you might expect, um, newspapers, news outlets from all over the country came to cover this um, and intruded upon the grief of these people. But it was interesting to see the way in which they were trying to compute their, their own confusion over it. They didn't understand. They didn't understand. And they kept questioning it. Why would the Amish community respond this way to a murderer who had taken their children's lives? And they, re- they responded. The Amish responded saying, well, it's our way. In fact, there was a Mennonite scholar at Georgetown University who was asked to explain why the Amish community forgave Roberts. 
And the scholars said the Amish believed that God had told them to forgive. And so they simply acted on what God told them to do. The emotions would follow and they would sort out their grief at another time. But that's their way. Love does not delight in the demise of a rival. It does not delight in another's calamity. There are many more wrongs believers can be tempted to rejoice in. But hopefully these three will help you think through other areas of your life where you might be tempted to rejoice in wrongdoing. Now let me conclude with one additional thought because the second half of that verse says love rejoices with the truth. It doesn't delight in wrongdoing but it rejoices with the truth. That simple statement is a shockwave because we often think in our 21st century world that love is purely in respect to how one human being interacts with another or how one group of people interacts with another group. We think of love purely in terms of the horizontal. But this verse interjects into love an aspect we often leave out and it's this. My attitude and my posture towards the truth of God's word has a profound effect on my ability to exhibit Christian love. It is not possible to exhibit Christian love towards people if I don't rejoice in the truth of God's word. All human love, in order for it to be distinctly Christian love, must have a Godward focus to it. The Apostle John tells us this, Second John. He writes, it has given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as the Father commanded us. And now, dear lady, I am not writing you a new command, but one we have had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another, and this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. Love one another. Let me define what that means, John says, to walk in obedience to God's commands. Rejoicing in the truth. See, our love for God's word, our obedience to it, and our love for people cannot be pulled apart. They can't be separated. Why is that? In 1 John, we're told that God is love. This verse is not saying there is this thing out there called love and God measures up to it. That's a lie that we've bought into. There is this thing out there, it's called love, and God happens to measure up to it. That's not how you should think about this. There is no external standard of love to which God is accountable. God himself provides the essence and definition of love. You wanna know what love is? Study God. Don't come up with your own definition. If dictionary writers were doing this right, they would go study God first and then generate their definition of love. There is no external standard of love that God's held accountable to. No, God himself intrinsically is the essence of love. So the more God-like you become, the more you take on his essence, which is the essence of love. You got it? Our love for God's word, our obedience to it, our love for people, they cannot be pulled apart. It's not possible. They can't be separated. Love does not delight in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. So here's the question. Three-part series on this. We could go on all year. How are we doing? How do you think Alliance Bible Church is doing? Are you ready to put our name in there?
Ready to put our name in those verses? Alliance Bible Church is patient and kind. ABC does not envy, nor do they boast. And they are not proud. The people of this church do not dishonor others. And they are not self-seeking. Nor are they easily angered. The people of Alliance Bible Church keep no record of wrongs whatsoever. Neither do they delight in evil, but instead they rejoice with the truth. ABC always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. How are we doing? How are you doing? Ready to put your name in there? Brian is patient. Brian is kind. Brian does not envy. You know, I've been working on this for over a month and I have yet to be able to get through verse four. And because I could never get through verse four, I thought to myself, preaching on this is not enough. We're gonna have to plead with the Lord on this. He's going to make us like this. We're going to have to beg him to do something supernatural. So as we close our time, here's what I want to do. We're going to have an extended time of silent corporate prayer. I'm going to lead you through this. If you need to bow your heads, close your eyes, you need to bow your knees, fold your hands, whatever posture you need to take in order to pray to the living God, do that. We're going to start by asking the Lord to make us a patient people. That God would form in us attributes of Jesus Christ who was long-suffering. Ask God to give you, ask God to give all of us very long fuses. If we are easily irritated, if we're touchy, ask God to free us from that. Let's pray that he would make us patient people.
Pray that God would convict us where we need it of possessing a spirit of dissatisfaction. We're prone to play the comparison game. Paul talks boldly in Philippians how he has learned the secret of being content. So let's ask the Lord to work that in us. Let's plead with God to convict us of wrongdoing we are tempted to delight in. Ask the Lord to show you, us, where we have celebrated something His Word condemns. Let's pray to the Lord to give us hearts and minds that rejoice with the truth of His Word.
1 Corinthians 13 is a high and lofty picture of love. Let's beg the Lord to form that in us, all of it. That our church may truly be a taste of the new heavens and the new earth. Loving God, you have saved us to change us. You've saved us to change us, to make us like you. Collectively, we pray that, that our church, those in our community who take the name of Jesus upon our lips would truly give people a taste of heaven. And I pray, God, that we would come to embody the virtue of Christian love. Correct us where our definition of love has gone sideways. I pray that you would bring us back to the truth of your word. And as we do, Lord, I pray that you would form us into a community that is distinctly unique in our world. God, we thank you that it's your passion, your desire to do this within the hearts and minds of your people. So we ask that you would. For the glory of Jesus' name, we pray these things. Amen.